Welcome to Table Lore, a storytelling podcast designed to be continued by you. Each episode focuses on new locations, characters, and spooks, which can be used for creative projects or tabletop role-playing games such as Monster of the Week or One-Shot Dungeons & Dragons campaigns. Season 1 is a tour across the United States and a D100 role determines where we're going next. I'm your co-host, Megan. And I'm your other co-host, Cass. Before we begin, remember that Table Lore is a fictional storytelling podcast, and while sometimes we will explore real legends, nothing we say should be treated as fact. Our stories center on the strange and unexplainable, but sometimes they are more horror-based. Audience discretion is advised. This week, we're going to Pennsylvania. Hi, Megan. Hi, Cass. What's been the best part of your day so far? We just had a delicious snuggle with both of our two cats. Mm -hmm. If you follow us on social media, you have probably seen our cats a few times. They're adorable. I love them. I'm obsessed with them. So, Megan, we're going to Pennsylvania today. Yeah, Pennsylvania is the Keystone State. Why is it called the Keystone State? You know, I don't know. We never know. We never actually look up why state mottos are the state mottos. Okay, I do. Oh, I, I don't. Okay, well, it's the Keystone State because it was foundational to the United States. Because it, it was one of the original 13 colonies? Yes. Yes. So, I've never been to Pennsylvania, but it sounds beautiful. Apparently, it's just mostly like mountains and forests and rivers and then philadelphia and pittsburgh but most of upstate pennsylvania seems really beautiful yeah i've never been to pennsylvania either i thought that i had but i asked my mom and she said that i have not been to pennsylvania which was surprising to me because i like weirdly remember going to pennsylvania but maybe that's a story for another day (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe someday we'll make a trip out to Pennsylvania. I think it would be cool to learn about some of the old history. Yeah, I love old things, which is why I love you. Okay. Cass just turned 28. It was his birthday this week. Yes. So when we were researching about Pennsylvania, I found some cool stuff that, well, one story that I don't think I've heard since maybe kindergarten. Do you remember being taught about Johnny Appleseed? I do. Uh, Didn't he plant trees? Yeah, so he's credited with introducing apple trees um, to the United States and I guess the colonial territories. But he planted his first nursery of apple tree in Pennsylvania. Um, So that's why I guess Google tells me that Johnny Appleseed is important to Pennsylvania history. Well... I'm glad that we have apple trees because of Johnny Appleseed. But I also read that he did go around and was planting this um, herb that he thought had medicinal properties, but was actually just like an invasive species and just like was a weed and just like strangled a lot of ecosystems. So, well, whoops. <laughs> guess there's got to be balance in the system somewhere. <laughs> 
You also read about a cryptid. Yeah, you know I love a good cryptid. And this one especially. So its name is extremely good. Um, It is called a squonk. A squonk? Yes, a squonk. So, How do you spell that? S-Q-U-O-N-K. Squonk. Squonk. So apparently these creatures live in northern Pennsylvania. And I would describe it as if a warthog and a piranha had a baby. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But just like with no tusks. And so it's just got this like weird, loose, ill-fitting skin and like is covered in moles and warts and it's just constantly crying. Oh. And they say that if you capture a squonk, it will cry so much it dissolves itself in its tears. (laughs) That is so sad. Yeah. So if you see a squonk, just leave it alone. Okay. So, you know, let's leave the squonks alone in Pennsylvania. Okay. We heard it here first, folks. What else did we do this week, Megan, that kind of inspired our our episode? Yeah, we had a fun research week. So this week's episode takes place during the Victorian era and centers around um, grave robbing and Victorian death kind of practices. So we watched some interesting YouTube videos as part of our research. We watched a video from the YouTube channel Ask a Mortician uh, titled, We Recreated a Victorian Funeral, and it was very entertaining. We had a great time learning about Victorian funeral practices. Yeah, all I know is that I'm glad I'm not living and dying in Victorian times. It seemed like a big to-do. It was a big to-do. People were obsessed with death, and women particularly felt a lot of social pressure to have what's called the good death which is like dying in a like kind of cute aesthetic situation and like having proper last words like your last words held a lot of like meaning and importance and weight and so if you died in a circumstance where you didn't get to have like your perfect last words that was kind of unfortunate or not not shameful but just uh a missed opportunity a missed opportunity <laughs> so i've been drafting your my, own last words my last words just in case just so that i can have them ready how morbid it's extremely morbid but it's been really fun seems more important to have a good draft of your last words than perhaps say a will or anything like that wedding vows yeah let's not yeah let's not i've been focusing more on my last words than our wedding vows (laughs) that does track for you yeah doesn't it just let's change things up a little bit this week let's start with some character description who are our characters this week cass well we were really inspired um, by tales of resurrection men, also known as grave robbers, and you need at least a few people to pull that off successfully. So we have a brother-sister duo this week. They're twins. They're twins, of course. It's very important to note. Um, I'm not sure what these twins look like, though. Well, they're Scottish 
their recent immigrants from Scotland to Victorian era America. They're 19 years old. And I don't want to be super stereotypical, but I think they probably have some like curly red hair. Mm hmm. I think so. The brother's name is Callum, and he's very tall and strong, like very like farm raised. I mean, we're like maybe going from Jamie for Jamie from Outlander, but okay, we don't. Okay, so Megan's going with Jamie from Outlander. Listen, why and, would we not? And then the sister's name is Maddie, M-A-T-T-I-E, which we thought was cool. Yeah, Maddie is pretty badass. Uh, she is also really buff, like really strong. She's pretty quiet, though. She is very reserved, kind of keeps to herself, but has a lot of drive for what she does and she's a like is a very deeply caring person but uh doesn't take much to please her doesn't she doesn't need much she doesn't want much yeah and callum i think has kind of a optimistic disposition on life because i think he has found that it's just easier for him to keep a smile on his face than to feel sad (laughs) maddie um doesn't necessarily choose to be sad, but definitely lingers more on the morbid side of things. Um, their profession is grave robbing. Maddie and Callum are grave robbers, and we're going to talk more about that. So they moved to Philadelphia two years ago from Edinburgh, Scotland. And let's go ahead and just jump into the scene. Want to start us off, Cass? Maddie McNully is grateful to be wearing linen trousers tonight. Although it was the middle of the night, the mid-August heat lingers heavily in the air. Wiping the sweat from her brow, Maddie calls up to her twin brother. It's done, Callum. Take this, she says, lifting the wooden shovel over her head. Callum swaps the shovel for a crowbar and whispers, Very good, sister. Let's finish this job quickly. The twins were highly experienced at robbing graves, and Maddie knew they would soon be out at a cemetery, a new prize in hand. She leverages the crowbar under the lip of the coffin and pulls up, easily prying open what was supposed to be this body's final resting place. The dead man was only buried yesterday and looked serene in his black suit, auburn hair parted and slicked back. Probably the best he had ever looked, honestly, Maddie thought as she slid the rope around the corpse's torso and tied a knot. Okay, let me get out, then we're ready to take him. Maddie uses the divots she had chunked into the side of the hole as footholds and hoists herself up out of the grave. God, is it ever hot. Let's get this done with. With leather-gloved hands, Callum pulls the rope taut and hand over hand lifts the dead man out of the grave. Big bloke though, ain't he? Callum and Myers might get paid extra for such a specimen. What do you think? I don't know. Maybe. Depends on if the professor is feeling generous. Maddie replies, untying the rope from the body of the old drunk. Probably shouldn't tell the professor who he is though. Callum snickers. (laughs) Might think we're the ones who did him in. They laugh for a moment before going quiet. Still, it's kind of strange, isn't it? 
selling dad's body. Don't get sentimental. Now at least he'll be of some use to us, Maddie replies, a hint of bitterness in her voice. She and Callum quickly shovel the displaced dirt back into the grave and wrap the corpse in a tarp. Callum uses the same rope to bind the corpse's feet and begins dragging it back toward the stagecoach. Callum heaves the corpse up into the small, plain, all-black, private, omnibus-style carriage as Maddie dons the top hat and coat she had left on the driver's seat. She pats their horse, Daisy's, gray nose before climbing into the driver's seat and grabbing the reins. Maddie waits for Callum's three taps on the window before signaling Daisy to start walking. After they bought the carriage, they installed heavy, dark curtains in the cabin to prevent anyone from noticing the unusual passengers they taxied through the dark streets of Philadelphia. Maddie is so well-versed at navigating this familiar route that she no longer has to light the carriage lamps on either side of the driver's seat anymore. There is hardly a soul to be seen during the two-mile ride from the cemetery to the twin marbled brick buildings on 9th Street. The University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine was the first medical school in the United States, opening its door for the first time in 1765. These days, medical advancements were pushing the cutting edge of science, and there was a high demand for cadavers to teach medical students. This, of course, was fortuitous for the McNally twins and their occupation as grave robbers or resurrection men had been lining their pockets with enough cash to make rent each month with plenty extra. Maddie parked the carriage and waited for the light in the front window of the left building to turn on, off, and on again. All clear, Callum, Maddie stated, hopping down from the driver's seat, opening the carriage door. The siblings watched as a tall figure emerged from the building, a bundle under their arm. Ah, good man, Callum said approvingly as the figure approached the carriage. I've brought the stretcher this time per your request, sirs, the young man addressed Maddie and Callum. Thank you, Mr. Clark. This will be much easier, Callum nodded. Albert Clark was a mustached young man with brown hair, glasses, and a calm demeanor. He was dressed in formal black attire, as was the fashion for doctors still in the mid-1800s. Mr. Clark had been Professor Adams' assistant for as long as the McNally twins had been resurrecting bodies in Philadelphia. Maddie sometimes wondered if Mr. Clark would ever graduate from medical school, but he was easy enough to deal with and never said anything untoward about her and Callum's morbid occupation, so she didn't mind their interactions. Callum and Maddie loaded the body onto the stretcher and followed Mr. Clark back into the building. As they descended the stairs leading toward Dr. Adams' operating theater, Mr. Clark spoke up. Professor Adams mentioned the other day that he is hoping to obtain a female cadaver in the near future, he said casually. That shouldn't be too much trouble, should it? No, sir, I think we could manage that. Although it does largely depend on who decides to give up the ghost next, doesn't it? Callum joked in response. All kinds of people live and die in this city, don't they, Mr. McNully? I'm sure women don't live forever. We are willing to offer a 10% bonus as incentive if we are able to obtain one by the end of the month, Mr. Clark stated, glancing back at the siblings. That should be fine, Mr. Clark, Maddie chimed in, her voice a few registers lower than usual. I hope you find yourself as agreeable as your brother here, Mr. McNully. Mr. Clark stopped to unlock the door to the operating theater. 
On the table as usual, please, sirs. Maddie and Callum unceremoniously transferred their father's corpse onto the wooden operating table at the center of the theater. Here, with dozens of medical students peering into his dissected body, Malcolm McNully would have just about as much peace as he let them have as kids, Maddie thought to herself. She wondered fleetingly if the teaching opportunity her father's body offered in death negated all of his past terrible treatment of Maddie and Callum. She decided it didn't, but happily folded the bills Mr. Clark presented her. We do value your business, Callum said, sticking out his hand to shake Mr. Clark's. Of course, sirs, we are grateful for what you were able to provide, Mr. Clark replied, shaking Callum's hand, then Maddie's. Thank you for remaining loyal to the University of Pennsylvania and for your discretion. And yours as well, sir. Good night. Maddie ended the pleasantries and turned to exit the room. Callum followed behind her, whispering excitedly. 10% bonus for some stiff old church bell, Maddie. Yes, I heard him, Callum. Shh. Maddie shushed her brother. Truthfully, she was just as excited by this bonus as he was, but she was just better at keeping her composure. Maddie is a very progressive character for the Victorian era. In public, she preferred to dress in men's clothing, hiding her hair under a brown felt top hat and binding her chest to hide her curves. Acting as her brother's business partner rather than his twin sister, the two found greater success. She did, however, own one proper gown, her morning gown. Following the typical Victorian fashion, the black gown was made from crepe fabric, which lended itself to a deeply wrinkled appearance. This was very traditional for the time. Every afternoon, around 3 p.m., she would dress in the gown and begin her routine carriage ride to the cemetery. People who knew her as Callum's business partner never knew she was the same widow they saw leave the home daily. Whispers on the street believe her to be Callum's sister, a widow whose husband died on the journey to America from Scotland. As per traditional mourning customs, she was to isolate in the home for a duration of two years. Though the two years have nearly passed, the supposed widow Maddie, still engulfed in grief, chose to remain in mourning, and no one questioned it. No one was bothered except for the occasional words of pity David expressed on her behalf. Of course, none of this is true. Maddie's not a widow, but rather a very clever grave robber who hides her face beneath a widow's cap, a long black veil lined with crepe, and lurks in cemetery corners to wait out funeral processions, carefully noting where fresh bodies are buried. She spared no expense on her gown, knowing it would be the greatest investment she ever made. Most people would ignore her if they saw her, but occasionally other women in mourning wear would approach and strike conversation. Maddie would ask them about their spouse, how they died, who and what they've left behind, and most importantly, would find out if any valuables were buried with their bodies. Grave robbing is a risky but very lucrative business to get into. It's just the getting into that's tricky. Fortunately, or maybe not fortunately, for Maddie and Callum, they've been doing this since infancy, their father being one of the most ambitious grave robbers in Scotland. Maddie and Callum's mother died during childbirth, leaving their father to care for the two infants. He arguably did his best, given the circumstances, 
but as soon as they were old enough to hold a shovel, he had the twins out in the graveyards with him, digging up bodies to sell to local universities. The older and stronger they got, the less their father assisted with the labor, eventually leaving them to do it all themselves while he reaped the reward. While they made good money, it rarely lasted longer than a few days. Malcolm McNully was a mean drunk who cared little for anything other than his local pub. Rumor was that he had been pleasant to their mom before she died, and that his meanness was really just a broken heart, but the twins only knew him to be cold and gruff at best, mean and dangerous at worst. His line of work wasn't much of a secret to those who frequented the bar, but they were too drunk to report anything to anyone, and had their dark secrets too, but that's a different story. The point is, the twins grew to resent their father and his business, and left him behind when they were just 17 years old to seek a better and brighter future in America. They arrived exactly two years prior to the current date, which is August 28, 1837, bringing nothing more than the clothing they wore and one small suitcase carrying some money and some sentimental items. They went from city to city hoping to find good work with not much luck. After six months of trying just about every available line of work, they were forced to return to grave robbing once more. It started with just the one time, promising they would only do it once just to earn enough money for rent, and that would be the end of it. But when they met Professor Adams, who paid nearly triple their usual rate, they decided this was their best option. Colum got a day job working in a local workshop, and Maddie would spend her days at the cemetery, scouting dig sites. Off to the cemetery then, Maddie, Callum inquired while watching Maddie perfect the placement of her veil in the hallway mirror. Their daily routines often began in the afternoon, since their nighttime work kept them awake until the early hours of the morning. Mrs. Samuels, the banker's wife, died three days ago. Mr. Samuels has reportedly hired armed guards to protect the grave tonight. They should be there, too, during the burial. I'll make friendly with them if they are. Your charm always does the trick, he complimented, pleased to hear that a female body became available so quickly after Professor Adams' request, and reached for his cap before walking out the door to begin his afternoon shift at the shop. B.B. Mills and Sons is the premier coffin maker in Philly, and is sure to advertise its employee discounts, which attracted many young individuals to work there. This sounds, can I use some Victorian slang here that I learned in our research? Oh, yeah. Sounds like these people um, had the morbs. Had the morbs? Yes, meaning feeling melancholy. (laughs) I love that. I want to use that. Yeah, you should. Ask me how I'm doing today. Megan, how are you doing today? I've got the molds. Oh no, I hope it does pass. <laughs> I hope it doesn't. <laughs> Anyways, the day's activities progress simply. Maddie's, Maddie introduces herself to the family of the newly widowed Mr. Samuels and claims to have been a loyal client of the bank for years, which is a lie. Her costume aged her at least 10 years, which worked wonderfully, and soon she found herself sitting in the parlor of the Samuels Mansion, enjoying the conversation about the family's plans moving forward. Her jewels will all be locked up in the vault, their son Philip stated. As for the gowns, he paused for a moment looking around the room. It is stated in her will that the evening gowns are to be given to her daughter Rebecca and the rest burned into winter fires. 
Maddie hid her disappointment, knowing she'd have to wait a few months before she could get her hands on the dresses. The resale value would fetch a handsome price. The elderly Mr. Samuel stood up and addressed the crowd gathered in the room. My dear departed wife remains in our hearts, he began, and now in spirit inside these lockets. He pulled three golden lockets from his breast pocket and placed one in the hands of each of his three daughters. Before handing out the last one, he opened it, revealing a small curled lock of Mrs. Samuel's silver-toned hair. So she may be with you always, Mr. Samuel concluded. The guests clapped softly to share approval of the gift, and the wake concluded shortly after. From the intel Maddie gathered, the armed guards would arrive on site around 8.30 tonight, just before dark, and would remain until 8 a.m. the next morning. Working around them would be tricky, but she wasn't sure when another female cadaver would be available. When Callum returned home from his shift, they discussed their options over dinner. Though they could afford to hire a cook, they couldn't risk anyone knowing their lucrative business. So Maddie and Callum would share the responsibility, as they would just about everything else. Maddie had no interest in marrying a man, and Callum has found that it's difficult to find a wife when you moonlight as a gravedigger. They've only ever had each other, and that's always been enough. Their plan is this. Arrive at the cemetery early, Maddie dressed in her morning attire, and Callum in his work clothes. Maddie will pretend to mourn at a grave for some time before approaching the guards, conversing with them, then offering them a tea containing a high dose of laudanum. Once the guards are asleep, they'll move their bodies off to the side and quickly get to work. Everything goes smoothly until one of the guards begins to wake up as Callum is still dragging the corpse by its feet back to their carriage. Maddie notices the guard shouting incoherently and limply attempting to chase after them, and she grabs the corpse under its shoulders. We need to get out of here right now, Callum. Pick her up, she yells at her brother. Callum and Maddie bolt toward the carriage, Daisy looking completely unbothered by the commotion, as Callum throws the body into the cabin and Maddie snaps the reins before Callum can even close the door. Maddie's heart is racing, but once they turn the corner, she releases a heavy sigh of relief. That was too risky, Callum, Maddie confesses as they pull up to the medical school. Got away with it, though, her brother responds, poking his head out from the carriage below. Maddie fidgets with the pearl necklace she lifted off of Mrs. Daniel's neck, still feeling tense. I don't know, something just doesn't feel right, she says with concern. This was the first time they'd ever had a close call, and it was enough to make her consider quitting the family business. They wait several minutes in silence for Mr. Clark's signal to appear in the window. Maddie glances at her watch. Fifteen minutes have gone by since they arrived. It's never taken this long before. Mr. Clark was usually dutifully waiting in the foyer on delivery days. You did notify him that we were making a delivery today, right? Maddie questions. Yes, sir, I certainly did. I hope you find that agreeable. Callum responds, imitating Mr. Clark's demeanor. I'm not in the mood for your humor, Callum. I think something is wrong. Nothing has been going right tonight. Maddie worries. I think we should try contacting Mr. Clark tomorrow before we... No, Maddie, you're overthinking this. He's probably busy. Or maybe he fell asleep. It is the middle of the night. Let's just go in the back way, like we used to do in the early days, Callum reassures his sister. 
Don't forget about that extra 10%. He winks cheerfully as he hoists the corpse over his shoulder. Maddie remains vigilant as they sneak through a back door of the building, taking the familiar route downstairs towards Professor Adams' operating theater. The building is dark, and they are careful to tread lightly, making as little noise as possible on the marble flooring. How are we going to open... Maddie begins to ask before noticing Callum's grin. Why don't you just find out for yourself? He points toward the door of the operating theater, which is slightly ajar. A warm yellow light emanates through the cracked doorway. Told you, he just got caught up in something and forgot about us. Callum quips triumphantly, pushing open the door. Mr. Clark, we were able to locate what you were- Callum trails off as he takes in the scene. The theater always had a subtle scent of death about it, but Maddie and Callum were taken aback by the overwhelming stench of rotting flesh the moment they walked inside. Choking on the air, Callum pulls his shirt collar over his mouth and nose while Maddie backs up through the doors and leaves the room. Only one of the usual ten lamps were lit, but in the dimness of the room, Callum could see the disorderly mess of broken glass and objects scattered across the tables and the floor. And, he squints his eyes to see better, blood smeared across the floor. The table where the twins had placed their father's body on the night previous had been knocked over, the sheet torn into shreds, the body itself missing. They can't be done with it already, he mutters to himself, confused. Callum glances around the room, noticing more blood smeared on the walls and a handprint on one of the counters. In a dark corner, practically hidden in shadows, Callum notices Professor Adam's body, limp and bloodied. His back rests against the wall, his legs outstretched on the floor, and his skull apparently shattered. It would be impossible to identify were it not for the professor's signature bow tie. Something terrible has happened here, and Callum gets the sense that whatever it was, it wasn't finished yet. Maddie bursts back through the doors in a panic and announces that she's found Mr. Clark lying in the hallway, dead, his body broken and bloody. Callum follows her to where he is, but before getting too close, he grabs Maddie's arm and says, We're leaving. But what about Maddie begins and Callum interrupts? Nope, not our problem. We're leaving. The two drive the carriage home in silence, both minds attempting to digest the scene they found. No one could know what they saw, because if they told anyone, they would be blamed. How could they explain why they were there? How could they begin to explain what they saw? Something clearly attacked the two men, but what? Maddie and Callum had never seen anything like this before, and hoped to never see it again. The twins had grown accustomed to the comfortable lifestyle their business awarded. They always had more money than they needed, never had to worry about their next meal, and nobody seemed to care enough about the grave robbing to stop them. But that night, both Callum and Maddie began to wonder what life would be like if they gave it all up. Because of their close call at the cemetery, Maddie lost her cover as the mournful widow and would have to rethink her tactics. The guards had seen her. They knew it was her who drugged them and stole the body. She wasn't safe anymore. She knew it was only a matter of time before Mr. Samuels sent someone to her home to demand the body back, or worse. Everything had changed, and Callum knew it too. Back home, they cleaned up and changed into their nightwear and sat in the parlor with a glass of brandy to calm their nerves. 
The room centers around the large wood-burning fireplace, brandishing a massive wooden mantle with a brass-framed mirror hanging above it. Two red velvet sofas sat on either side of the fireplace, and an ornate, multicolored rug covered the wooden floors below. Conversation was light, neither twin filling up for banter. Sometime around 3 a.m., Maddie announced she was going to head up for bed, but Callum lingered in the parlor. Just as Maddie shut her bedroom door, she heard a knock at the front door, followed by Callum's footsteps heading towards it. She could hear a man talking, but couldn't make out the words. Callum's voice raised and shouted, No! And Maddie quickly ran towards the stairs to look down at the entryway and see who was there. It was her father, Malcolm McNully, whose dead body they had sold to Professor Adams two nights ago. He died of natural causes a few days after showing up unexpectedly in Philadelphia, claiming the twins owed him money. I got a letter from our neighbor, Mrs. McLee, saying you two are flaunting some wealth, he said in his usual drunken stupor. I know how you got that money. I taught it to you. This is my business, and this is my money. The twins, of course, refused and threw him out of their home. They owed him nothing and wanted nothing to do with him. In the moment, Callum could have killed him, but he didn't. Fortunately, well, so they thought, Mother Nature had taken care of all that for them. The next morning, a newspaper boy sent by the innkeeper informed the twins that their father had passed in his sleep. They didn't have a funeral. Callum used his discount and purchased the cheapest wooden coffin he could get his hands on, and the twins buried their father themselves. At first, they hadn't planned to sell his body at all. Nothing good in there anyways, Maddie joked. But two nights after they buried him, the twins decided to dig him up anyways. Let him be of some use to us, they had justified. Yet... Here he is, standing, blue-skinned and reeking of death, back in their foyer, demanding his money. His voice is raspy, and the words coming out of his mouth are hard to understand, but his outstretched hand begging for money is obvious, and Callum, pale-skinned and terrified, stands frozen in place. Maddie flies down the stairs and pushes Malcolm backwards, which enraises the... Man? Creature? beast? She's not sure what he is, but it isn't a man, and it isn't her father anymore. Her father, that bastard, is dead. Malcolm shoots up and swings his arms at her, but Callum blocks the blow, and Malcolm rips his teeth into Callum's shoulder, causing him to scream out in pain. Maddie screams as she reaches for the heavy brass candlestick on the foyer table and bashes it into Malcolm's head. Malcolm releases Callum, tossing him to the side and charges towards Maddie. His head is misshapen from the blow, but isn't bleeding. In fact, he hardly seems phased or injured at all, just much more enraged. Maddie swings the candlestick again and again and again, bashing Malcolm's head in from every direction, and Callum, who ran to the kitchen, slides a butcher knife across the floor towards Maddie. She picks it up narrowly dodging Malcolm's next blow and stabs the knife into his chest. None of Maddie's attacks seem to have any effect on Malcolm. Panting, she wedges the knife out of his chest, climbs up a few stairs, Malcolm chasing after her and pushes him down. Malcolm lands on his back and Maddie jumps down and slices the knife through his neck, beheading him. 
Malcolm's head rolls across the hallway floor and stops against the doorway of the parlor. Callum is sitting on the floor, grasping his wound, crying in pain. It looks as though Malcolm bit a whole chunk out of his arm, the flesh oozing blood. A painful injury to be sure, but more concerning was the temperature of Callum's skin. Sweat dripping down his forehead, his face had lost all color, and his heartbeat was slow. He was dying. Maddie helped him up the stairs and got him into his bed to rest. She filled a bowl with water and tore a sheet to clean and bandage his wound with. The bleeding seemed impossible to stop, but Maddie diligently tended to the wound through the night. After several hours, sleep began to take over, and Maddie rested her head on the bed next to Callum, just for a moment, she promised herself. Not long after dozing off, she is awoken by Callum wheezing. Maddie takes his hand and attempts to comfort him and herself, dabbing a wet cloth along his forehead. Callum's skin is white as a sheet and still burning. Maddie wants to call for a doctor, but fears how to explain the injuries and her father's beheaded corpse in the parlor. Callum's breathing slows and eventually stops. Tears fall from Maddie's eyes as her brain struggles to comprehend that her brother is dead. Devastated and heartbroken, Maddie refuses to leave his side and stays next to the body for hours. His body is cold now, and rigor mortis has begun to set in. She wraps a cloth around his head to seal Callum's jaw shut and places a covering over his eyelids. She sits back in the chair and takes her brother's hand one last time, but is startled to feel his fingers wiggle. She jolts backwards just as Callum sits up, the coverings over his eyes falling off, and he groans. Maddie scoots her chair backwards, and Callum sharply turns his head towards her, staring coldly, and lunges in her direction. Um, Megan, that has been, I think, my favorite story yet. Yeah, you love a good zombie story. I do. And as we were in the middle of writing this, you told me about... Uh, yes, we did have to take a research break (laughs) to watch Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yeah. So, if you want to see some really cool Victorian-era women in their Victorian-era dresses... It's Regency, but... Oh, gosh. Just, it's close enough to the Victorian era. Ah, well, you would know better about Pride and Prejudice than I. But anyway, old-timey women in old-timey dresses doing really (laughs) amazing fight scenes. Mm -hmm. It is, I would highly recommend that movie. Yes, it was very influential. To this episode? Just to my life generally. Oh, just to your life generally, yeah. I was going to say, if you liked this episode, go watch Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Or read the book. Read the book that the movie is based off of. Oh, sure. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Well, we hope you enjoyed this zombie story. Tell us all of your gameplay experiences. We want to hear it. Send us a message on our website at www.tablerpodcast.com or shoot us a DM on any one of our social media networks. You can find us at Table or Podcast. Perfect. You ready to roll that D100? Oh, it's my favorite part. Going to... Wyoming. Wyoming. Everybody's favorite state is Wyoming. You know, I only hear good things about Wyoming. Okay. Cool. (laughs) I haven't heard anything about Wyoming. Did you know that Wyoming is the cowboy state? 
It is when I'm there, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway, stick around for some gameplay suggestions. Okay, storytellers, now it's your turn to create the rest of this story. Roll a d6 for inspiration about how to continue. If you roll a 1 or a 2, you and your party play as Malcolm McNally and important figures in his life. Perhaps his late wife who used to grave rob with him, the professor he would sell bodies to, the local barkeep who was his friend, maybe even the law enforcement trying to capture grave robbers. You might tell the story of a strange occurrence that happened during Malcolm's tenure as a resurrection man, or perhaps you explore one big heist that he and his crew pull off. If you roll a three or four, you discover that Malcolm McNally's corpse had been treated with an elixir created by Professor Adams to extend the shelf life of cadavers, unknowingly creating zombies. You and your party play as Maddie and her associates as zombie slayers in Victorian-era Philadelphia. How many more zombies roam the city streets, inflicting violence and chaos? Does Maddie and her crew contain the threat in secret, or does a zombie apocalypse knowingly afflict the entire city? And if you roll a 5 or a 6, you and your party play in a modern-day alternate reality Philadelphia, where zombies are a common fact of life. What does it take to survive here? How do you make a living? Are you slayers for hire that take care of particular zombie issues? Or are you a group of scientists trying to find a cure for zombism? <laughs>